We're starting at uh, verse 27 of John 4. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more were believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Uh, well, as I said, we've been uh, going through a series in the book of John uh, since the start of the year. And I want to start this morning with a question. And the question is this, what keeps you going? What is it that keeps you going? Uh, what is it that uh, helps you to get out of bed in the morning first thing? And what is it that keeps you awake at night? Where do you find power to persevere? particularly when life is difficult and when there's suffering, when you get the unexpected diagnosis, when there's family relationship and breakdown, when things are difficult, when it feels like it's hard just to put one foot in front of the other. Where does the power come from to keep going when life is like that? And in particular, we can go further as well if you're a Christian here this morning and ask, where does the power come from? How do we keep going in mission, in witness, in seeking to speak about Jesus? Andy's already spoken this morning about the difficulty of being a Christian parent and trying to teach them about Jesus. What keeps you going when you've invited your friends to events year after year and they keep saying no? Or when your grown-up children reject Jesus? What keeps you going in life through difficulty and suffering, and what keeps you going in witness? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that John has an answer for us from John chapter 4. And his answer is to show us a glimpse. He pulls back the curtain and he gives us a glimpse of what keeps Jesus going. And if we see what keeps Jesus going, that's going to help us to understand where the power comes from 
for us to keep going. Here's a, a quote I'm going to put up on the screen for you. If there is a man who knows anything about power in the world today, then it's this man. Can we get this? You haven't got anything? Fantastic. Okay. Great. I'll go. I'm off, I'm off PowerPoint, I'm afraid, but there we go. Uh, I was going to show you a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger. If, if there is a man who knows anything about power, then it's him. As a young man, a very physically powerful person. Someone who you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of. And in later life as well, a man who has experienced a very different but no less significant power as a governor of California. And let me read to you what he had to say about power. This is what he said. We all have great inner power. You have to see yourself winning before you win. You have to be hungry and you have to want to conquer. In other words, you have all of the power within yourself to keep going and to persevere. But actually, our lived experience tells us that that's not true. Often we don't have... Here, here he comes, here he comes. Let's do a picture. There he is, fantastic. Often, our lived experience tells us that that's not true. I don't have the power within myself. I look within myself, but I don't know how I'm supposed to keep going through the difficulty and the suffering. And so John has a different answer for us this morning. And I think part of the reason these verses are so hard to understand... It's because Jesus has, is speaking at two levels of meaning. Two levels of meaning. Now, this is something we're actually used to in a sort of entertainment world through films and songs and books and plays. So back in 1953, there was a play written called The Crucible. It's written by Arthur Miller. And uh, many people may have seen the film or you may have studied it at school. And what is The Crucible about? It's a play about the Salem witch trials... But at the time that it was written, Arthur Miller, who wrote it, lived in America. And there was lots of stuff going on about this idea of the hidden communist who lives amongst us, and particularly in Hollywood. And so he writes this play, which is about one thing at surface level, but it actually it's about something else entirely. So it's written with these two levels of meaning. And that's something that John does for us all the time. We've seen it several times already in John's Gospel. In fact, so much so that John sort of almost starts to turn it into a joke. This idea that Jesus is speaking about earthly things, but at a heavenly level, and people just don't get what he's talking about. So you can go back to John chapter 2. We were there a few weeks ago with Dan Sinclair. Jesus is in the temple and he says to them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the people say, what on earth are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this temple. Because Jesus is speaking about earthly things, the temple, but he's speaking at a heavenly level. He's talking about his own body. Or John chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And he says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what on earth are you talking about? I'm a grown man. How am I supposed to get back inside my mother's womb? Or John chapter 4, last week, with the Samaritan woman, where Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. And she says, what on earth are you talking about? You haven't got a bucket with you. What are you going to do, dig another well? Are you better than Jacob? See, Jesus is speaking about earthly things, but he's speaking at a heavenly level. And if we want to understand what he's saying to the disciples here in John 4, we need to keep that in mind. Earthly things at a heavenly level. And so to try and understand what Jesus is saying, I want us to think this morning about four verbs. 
four verbs that Jesus uses, and we're going to think about them in two pairs. The first pair is eating and working. Eating and working. Take a look at verse 32, or verse 31, sorry. The disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. So the context is, last week we saw this intimate conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, which takes place without the presence of the disciples. That's because they're on this long, hard journey through Samaria. They get to this backwater town called Sychar, and they're hungry, they're tired, and they're grumpy. And so the disciples go off to buy food. You see that in verse 8. So they go off to buy food, and then Jesus has this intimate, relationship, this intimate conversation with the Samaritan woman, where he exposes her heart. And then in verse 27, we have these kind of stage directions where the disciples come back, and then the woman leaves. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, you need to eat something. We went all that way to get food. You need to eat something. Verse 32, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then we get one of these classic John examples of people not understanding the level that Jesus is speaking about. They say, oh, hang on a minute, we just went all that way to get you food, and now we come back and you say you've got some food. They think someone's brought him some food out from the town. Maybe someone's come out and snuck him a cheeky sausage roll while the disciples were off in town. It wouldn't have been a sausage roll, obviously, because they're Jewish. But they, <laughs> you know, they think someone has brought him some food, and they say, oh, we went all that way to get food for you. We come back and now you've eaten already. But then Jesus gives us the real punchline in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do God's work. Now, eating and working are two things which are closely linked. I think it's fair to say either you eat to work or you work to eat. In a kind of modern culture, most young people today, they work to eat. In other words, work is a necessary evil. It is a thing which I must do in order to earn money so that I can eat great food and drink rich wine, go out with my friends, have a great time. If you're of an older generation, uh, and certainly if you were of a Bible generation here in the New Testament, there would have been much more of a sense that you work to eat. In other words, what... Work, sorry, that you eat to work. In other words, work is a good thing in and of itself. So when I eat, it's not just about me getting what I want. I'm sustaining myself. I'm giving myself nutrition so that I can go out and do the work that God has given me to do. Either you work to eat or you eat to work. But Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not like that for me. For me, eating is working and working is eating. Doing my work that God gave me is my food. Now, what does Jesus mean? I think he means this. In order to achieve the work that God has given him to do, Jesus does not need anything. Now, again, remember, Jesus is speaking about earthly things, but at a heavenly level. So, yes, I know uh, Jesus, in his limited human form, did need to eat. He did need to sleep. We see that other places in the Gospels as well. But Jesus has a heavenly reality in mind here. And he says, after the cross, after the resurrection, in my resurrection body, now at the right hand of the Father, there is nothing that I need to achieve the work that God has given me. 
Jesus can accomplish his work simply on account of who he is. He does not need anything in order to do it. So the natural question then is to say, well, what is the work that Jesus is talking about? What has God given Jesus to do? And we don't need to go anywhere else outside of the book of John to find out. So let's take a whistle-stop tour through the book of John. We've seen some of these verses already. So John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And then into John chapter 3, speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus says, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The very next verse, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. You see the same repeated beat that John's trying to make. We're going to skip to John 17, not because the the chapters in between aren't saturated with this stuff, but simply because of time and room on the slide. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father, and he says this, you granted him me, Jesus, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And then John chapter 21, the very last, um, almost the last chapter of his gospel. This is what John writes. This is why he wrote his book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is the work that God has given Jesus to do? It's simply to give life. Now that should make, us, make it even more overwhelming that Jesus says that he can do this work without needing food, without needing to take anything. You see, in the Bible, food, particularly bread, but food, is a picture of life. I said earlier that eating and working are closely linked. One of the reasons that that's true is because if you were to stop eating, eventually you would stop working because you would stop breathing. If you're going to do your work, you need to take in food. You need to take in life. I guess most of us probably have had that experience where you've had a long day of work, You had a quick breakfast because you needed to get off. You skipped lunch because you had an important meeting. You get home, you sit down, you think, I cannot do another thing until I've eaten something. If you stop eating, eventually you will stop working. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like a petrol engine who needs to be continually filled up in order to give out life. And the kind of life that Jesus gives, he's not just talking about a one-off spiritual experience. So the direction of travel in John's gospel is towards the cross and the resurrection. And at the cross, when Jesus dies, he gives life as as a one-off. That is the event which is able to give us life. But John has much more than that in mind when he speaks about life. It's like this Israelite Hebrew idea of shalom. It's an ongoing, uh, deep seated sense of joy and peace and comfort it's a continual work of giving life jesus isn't like a petrol machine and he's not like one of these uh, pretend perpetual uh, motion machines you know these little toys that you get on you see them on ceo desks in films i don't know if any ceo in london actually has one on their desk but this idea that you drop you know you pick up one ball of the newton's cradle and then you drop it and it keeps going 
and it pretends that it can keep going forever. But it can't, because every time the ball hits the other one, a little bit of energy leaks out as heat and sound, and eventually it stops. Jesus is not like a Newton's cradle. The life that Jesus offers will never run out. If you're finding life difficult, if you're struggling to put one foot in front of the other, this is what you need to hear. Jesus will not turn you away because he's hungry or because he's grumpy or because he's angry. Jesus, if I can put it this way, Jesus will not uh, ignore you or not give you life today because he got out of bed the wrong side or because he hasn't had his breakfast. The life that Jesus can offer you now as he stands at the right hand of the Father is complete and continual and it will never run out. Every single day, you can rely on that life. You can depend upon it. You can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please, will you give me that life today? Will you give me an ongoing sense of joy and peace because of all that you have done for me at the cross? And you can know that it will never run out. But Jesus isn't happy leaving the disciples there, as if that weren't enough for us to try and wrap our heads around this morning. He's not happy leaving them there because he wants to then show them, he wants to give them an outworking of what it means when Jesus gives life. And so we've got eating and working, but we have these other two verbs that he uses as well, sowing and reaping. This is our second point this morning, sowing and reaping. I wonder if we read through, verse 35 feels like a bit of a shift. feels like Jesus is changing the subject a little. So he's talking about work and food, and then suddenly he changes and starts talking about the harvest and sowing and reaping. And you kind of think, hang on a minute, Jesus, aren't you mixing your metaphors here? So much so that I wonder what you thought as we read through the passage. I suspect it was something like this. This is an insight into how I felt as I first read through the passage a couple of weeks ago. I suspect it was something like this. Verse 27, you think, oh, the disciples have come back, okay, so we've got a story. This is good, I can handle a story. That's good. Into verses 30, 31, you think, oh, not really sure what Jesus is talking about here. Nigel's really stitched Chris up by going away this weekend. But then you get to verse 35 and you think, oh, hang on, I've got it. Now I know what this passage is about. It's not going to be about Jesus and who he is. It's like a witnessing passage. Fine. So Chris will beat us up for a little bit about not working hard enough at speaking to our friends about Jesus. We'll pray, we'll sing a song, and then we'll all go on our merry way. Job done. But if we think like that, then I think we've missed the point. Jesus is not changing the subject. You see, he wants us to understand that the work he is doing, in verse 34, the work that he can self-sufficiently do for eternity without needing to take anything in, that is the same work that is going on in the passage as the Samaritan woman speaks to the townspeople. You see, in verse 36, when Jesus says, even now, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. You see that? That's the work he's been given. When Jesus says, even now, I don't think he just means now as a kind of gospel age sense. The time between the cross and resurrection and when Jesus comes again. He does mean that. So he does mean now in 2023 at EE, but he also means even now, literally right now, as I speak to you disciples, this work is being done. Because as Jesus is speaking to them, he knows that the Samaritan woman is off at the rest of her town telling all of her 
I was going to say friends, but we know they're not her friends, but all of her family members and her neighbors and her colleagues, she's telling all of them about who Jesus is. You see, this is the work of giving life. It's being done at the moment. And so Jesus says in verse 37, uh, sorry, verse 36, the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Now, just like eating and working, Jesus takes these two things and he smashes them together. He does the same thing here. You see, sowing and reaping don't usually take place at the same time. I'm not a farmer, but this is my basic understanding of how sowing and reaping works. That across the year, you have these four seasons, right? So you prepare your fields, you get them ready. Then once they're ready, you plant the seed. And then you wait for the seed to grow. You protect it, keep it safe from birds coming to eat the seeds and stop the hail and snow getting to the crop. And then eventually, when the crop is ready, you go out and you harvest it. But Jesus says now the sowing and the reaping take place at the same time. And I think he has a very specific passage in mind as he says that from the book of Amos. It's going to be on the, on the screen in a minute, so you don't need to turn there. But I'm going to read from the book of Amos chapter 9. In the book of Amos, God has said to the people that they have ignored him and they haven't been like him. God wants them to look after the poor and the needy, but they put themselves first. And because of that, exile is coming. Judgment is coming. But God makes a promise and says, once that is done, once exile is finished and judgment is over, I will bring you back. And this is what he says in Amos chapter 9. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And we'll rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile." You see what God is saying in Amos 9? He's saying that after judgment is done, when I bring you back, I'm going to provide for you so wonderfully, so abundantly, so mercifully, that you are not going to know what to do with the stuff that I give you. You're going to have so much stuff coming in that it's going to take you a year to gather it in. You're still going to be collecting all this stuff when the sower for next year's crops comes around trying to sow. And he's going to say, hey, get out of my way. You say, no, I can't. I've still got stuff to take in from last year. That's how much God is going to provide. And then Jesus comes along in John 4 and says, that time is now. Now the sower and the reaper rejoice together. And what God was promising you was not corn or wine, rivers of wine. It was people. People are going to be coming in. That's the abundant provision that God has promised in Amos chapter 9. And so Jesus says, this woman, she's off speaking to her friends right now, and that is what's happening. This is my work of giving life. Now, if we understand mission, witnessing, speaking about Jesus, whatever you want to call it, if we understand that in this kind of way, as a, as a partaking of the work Jesus does of giving life, then it will transform the way that we speak to people about Jesus. And in particular, just as we close, I want to think about three implications that this has. If, if we think of speaking about Jesus not as something I have to do because Jesus told me I should, but instead as a part of the work Jesus does of giving life, 
Here are three implications. The first is this. Witnessing about Jesus is not optional. Now, I, I sort of implied earlier that I wasn't going to beat you up about your witness, but this is an important point that we need to make from John 4. Witnessing about Jesus isn't optional. If Jesus is changing topic between 34 and 35, if he's drawing a line and saying, I'm talking to you about my work of giving life, but then he says, okay, pause, break, now let's talk about mission, then you could say that witnessing about Jesus is optional. You could say, I love Jesus for what he's done for me at the cross. I worship him for that. But that's about my relationship with him. And I'm not the kind of Christian who talks to other people about Jesus. I'm not the kind of Christian, I don't want to ram it down people's throats. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to them. That's okay. They can believe what they want to believe. Now, of course, of course, we need to do this sensitively. So I'm talking here not about bashing people over the head with the Bible, but about pointing them to Jesus, the source of true life. But John wants us to see that it's not optional. The Samaritan woman, Nigel um, thought about this with us last week, it was very helpful. The Samaritan woman could have, after this uh, intimate conversation with Jesus, she could have run away. She could have said, wow, I've had this intense conversation with Jesus. He knows my every thought. He knows my heart. And I believe he's Messiah, and I love and worship him. But I can't go back to those people now. She could have said, I need to follow Jesus. I'm going to give up everything I've got and follow him. It's only about my relationship with him now. But she doesn't do either of those things. The first thing she does when she has been given life is that she rushes to the very people who have judged her and alienated her, and she tells them about it too. If you have been given life by Jesus, not just as a one-off, but continually, Day by day, if you're trusting in him and on his mercy and grace, then we are obliged to tell others about that. Witnessing about Jesus isn't optional. Here's the second implication. The next two are an encouragement to us, I promise. So, uh, witnessing about Jesus isn't in a vacuum. Witnessing about Jesus isn't in a vacuum. In other words, when you speak to someone about Jesus... It does not start when you open your mouth, and it doesn't finish when you close it. Did you see the way Jesus spoke about himself and the woman? He calls himself the sower and her the reaper. And then he says to the disciples in verse 38, and I think he's speaking to the Samaritan woman as well, casting his net across all of those, and he says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. In other words, because mission is not just speaking to someone about Jesus, because it's part of the work that God is doing through Jesus to give life, it means that Jesus has gone before you and Jesus will come after. So you can be freed to say what, whatever it is that you say without thinking, I need to say everything I possibly can here, because you are just the reaper and you're going to reap what others have sown. So don't think you need to get everything out of the way. Don't think you need to do it all in one go. Trust that Jesus is going to give life and rejoice that you get to take a part in that, or whatever small that might be. Witnessing about Jesus isn't optional, and it's not in a vacuum. And then the last one is this. This is always hard to hear, but it's important for us, I think, from this passage. Witnessing about Jesus isn't about you. 
What's interesting about Jesus isn't about you. I wonder if you saw the way the Samaritans spoke to the woman in verse 42. So verse 39, loads of Samaritans believe. They asked Jesus to come and speak to them. Jesus speaks to them. And in verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. I don't know about you, but it comes, off, it comes off a little bit rude. They say, okay, thanks. Thanks for showing us where Jesus was. But now, don't really care what you had to say because we've got him. But I don't think they're being rude to her. I think John wants us to see that the whole point of what the Samaritan woman was doing has been achieved. This is what successful mission looks like. Because speaking to our friends about Jesus is about Jesus sharing his life, what we want is for them to forget what we said and to look only at him. I think most of the times when I struggle with speaking to my friends about Jesus is because I'm thinking about me and not about him. What if they laugh at me? What if I say something in the workplace and it affects my job? What if I don't know enough? What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? But the whole point is, it's not about you. You cannot give life. And even if you could give them life, eventually you would run out. And you'd have to eat more before you could do it again. But Jesus doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. He's doing this now at the right hand of the Father. He's giving life every day. So you don't need to worry about you. Just think about him. Now, doesn't that free us to speak about him boldly? To point people to him, the one who gives life. The one who can give life to our friends, to our family, and to the one who can give us life day by day, continually allowing us to lean upon him and to trust in him for grace and for mercy.